0: we can ready for your quiz on the gambler Does that, is that a no <laughs> it's really strange how this course would should like have well maybe it's not strange maybe it's a, it's a what. The poet Percy Bysshe Shelley calls, in a wonderful phrase, a strange and natural antithesis. Um, nevertheless, that this course, which like should be having more reading than practically any other course you're taking, has like no reading. Um, <laughs> so how did that happen? Um, <laughs> what do you think, Owner? It looks like you have an idea. No, I mean I was just. I mean I had a because I was just just came out of my UWS asking people to read things and have to incentivize it. I, I don't, yeah. So I, I didn't have an idea. It's just amusing. Amusing on, on reading and its lack. Just um, a way of incentivizing. Well, these guys made a bet that there would be a zero today as far as far dis- <laughs> as far as a quiz on The Gambler went they might have lost. All right, have people started it? Have people finished it? Has anyone finished it? Okay, can you finish it by Wednesday? Prove. No? <laughs> Is that just like a no? <laughs> I don't know, man. Things happen. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening? Your softball game was canceled. Yesterday? No, but last week. Yesterday, I was playing softball for seven and a half consecutive hours because we couldn't manage to win it in seven innings. We had to go to nine. Yeah. We there until eight thirty Wait. So each innings an hour? No, because there are two games. It was a doubleheader. Yeah. All right. So, so but you spent half that time on the bench. No, I played. But when the other team? Oh, you're right. Who <laughs> <But laughs> was in the field? Because then you have to hit and then you have to run and that's even more tiring. Yeah. Sixty feet at a time. It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all right um, I'll get around to it eventually it's a matter of eventually okay well we're going to discuss it on Wednesday solid <laughs> good. we'll figure it out I'm I'll translate it in. <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're doing really well on your way towards being an executive that's good <laughs> All right, we also said we'd figure out what we're going to do for the five or so weeks that remain. Um, so do you guys have thoughts on that? Do you have the syllabus in front of you, the um, the running syllabus? So let me tell you... Um, syllabi is what I want. Um, okay, so it is... March today um <laughs> Gabby thank you <laughs> Uh today is my god we're from being, Um today we're supposed to be reading Norris's the Pit. We're supposed to have read Whitehead's The Noble Hustle, Dostoevsky's The Gambler, Defoe's Roxana, Blake's The Porzoas. As Did you guys read The Marks, which I said was going to be on the um quiz, but didn't, because I thought maybe he might not have, um, The Marks, and uh, yes, yeah, it's all his novel, Money, Howells, The Man of Business, The Man of Letters, and um, for next week, Dreiser's 400-page novel, The Financier. Um, so that's a lot of stuff we haven't read. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> are you surprised? Have you, like, been avoiding the syllabus? No, not so. Oh, okay. <laughs> what are you? That was an amazing expression. What was it? I don't know. I just think it's funny. Because, <laughs> no, I looked at the syllabus over the weekend, and I was like, oh, I didn't even realize I bought that many books. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So here's, at, <laughs> at the rate we're going, uh, we will finish this course in the... I'd say mid fall of um, 2021. Um, (laughs) We might have a new president. We might not. It's looking less like we will. Um, But uh, so we won't do it that way. We're going to have to skip stuff. Okay, so so, um, we kind of um, did okay getting up to Hume, but that was um, a month ago is when we should have been uh, to Hume. And then um, we decided to skip uh, Roxana, even though it's great, but it's long. And um, I guess where we are now, so I'll just say where we are now, where we are now is in a section of the class which is about gambling. Um, The section of the class about gambling and about fictional representations of gambling which is what The Gambler is about among many, many, many other books including every single James Bond novel anywhere. The relationship of gambling to fiction is a really interesting one. And um, in a sense, the place in this course where the literature and finance actually do go together in a way which casts light upon Mm -hmm. literature that is, and maybe cast light on money as well, but the cast light upon literature and how literature works, so what we 've been talking about a lot is how money works, and um, partly what we 've been talking about is that for money to work, there has to be the use of the imagination in conferring value upon it in thinking of values in different sorts of ways so that the kind of value that you get from not taking the larger slice of pizza, it seems to be a different kind of value from the kind of value that the larger slice of pizza offers you. What we were talking about when talking about Smith and then ultimately about Kant, who who isn't interested in the money part at all, in the exchange value at all of what constitutes the beautiful. Nevertheless, we're getting into what is the single most important philosophical theory of beauty since Plato, which is Kant's philosophical theory of beauty. And the one that has driven the most philosophical thought about what beauty is, what beauty might be. So we got there partly by thinking about value and thinking about how people imagine value differently. And one of the ways that they imagine value differently, this is where, where Smith might be thought to be, and Hume also, but not so much in the piece by Hume that you guys read, that the, that the difference between the kind of value that gives you immediate use and the kind of value that inheres in your refusing something that would give you immediate use that that difference seems to be a really interesting one, ultimately an aesthetic one, ultimately one which requires the use of the imagination and in part requires the use of the imagination to imagine what other people are thinking about what you're doing. So that there is a kind of value, which is our paradigm case again is taking the meanest um, the meanest, the meanest thing in the dish, the meanest portion in the dish, the smallest slice of pizza, is that there is a kind of value which is exchange value, which is filling one of the fulfilling one of the functions of money, which is that you get credit for taking the smallest slice of pizza, and somehow that credit. That you get for that Is more valuable Than the thing that it's credit for That in As use value it's clearly less valuable And yet Somehow the credit that you're getting Gives it a secondary Or um, An orthogonal kind Of value And that brings us Close to What theory That we spent a little bit of time on what anthropological account that we spent a little bit of time on, where somehow credit rather than goods seems to matter more. The the, the hint in my question was anthropological. Yeah, or the gift in general. That is, that the idea of giving a gift is that you have now made someone grateful to you and somehow their gratitude... Is more valuable Than the thing that you've given them Which doesn't quite make sense It does make sense You know those people who give gifts Of stuff that they have too much of That is you, you're, Everyone has a relative who's, Who makes some kind of thing That in itself isn't Like particularly interesting But they have a lot of them Because they manufacture this kind of thing And they give it to you as a gift And it's like oh great the gifts that you really feel grateful for are the ones that are thoughtful and that cost the giver. That is, if it doesn't cost the giver, it's nice to get something, especially if it's something that you might actually want, but it's nicer to get something that costs the giver, that you feel that's part of what the thoughtfulness of a gift is. There's a great moment in Henry James's Golden Bowl where... The where uh, well I don't want to give you any spoilers but the golden bowl itself is extremely expensive and a couple of people are considering buying it as a wedding gift and when they find out how much it costs they're shocked by how much it costs and the salesman the owner of the shop from whom they're considering buying this golden bowl says to them And it says to them that you can always afford more for a gift than for yourself. That is, the idea of the gift is partly that you are paying more than you would for yourself. That's what makes it something really good, is that you're showing another person more generosity than you would show to yourself. How is it? Generosity if you buy yourself something nice? Well, if you're splurging, there is a kind of self-generosity there. If you're splurging on something, the self-generosity of a splurge is that you can't afford it, but you buy it anyhow. Lots of You know that lots of advertisers take this as um, a way to convince people to splurge on themselves. You know, you deserve it. No, you don't. Or how do they know what I deserve? They know nothing about me. No, you deserve it. Sinfully delicious. You you are such a good person that you deserve a chance to sin. You can have some me time eating chocolate in the tub, even though the chocolate is really expensive and the bath beads are really expensive because you deserve it. Be good to yourself. It's like that is a way of turning towards oneself this idea of splurging which is spending more than you can afford you would rather have the money but there's something really pleasurable instead about spending the money on yourself but that's the logic of the gift made um, short-circuited the and it it does it's not it's not that modern advertising short-circuits the logic of the gift it's always been short-circuited But what makes it something not sinful is it's not sinfully delicious to give someone else Godiva chocolate. There, what you're doing is you're splurging on on someone else. And so what happens in the golden bulb is the um, owner of the shop basically convinces them really correctly that paying more for a gift than you can afford or certainly than than you would Pay for yourself is precisely what makes it a gift. That the gift is something which is, in a sense, not worth the sheer money that you have paid for it. And it therefore, because it's not worth it, it symbolizes that money. It doesn't hold the value of the money. The golden bowl couldn't be sold on eBay by its receiver for the same amount of money that the two people who buy the golden bowl have paid for it. The receiver, if they'd given, they could have given less money to the receiver, bought more money than the receiver could sell the bowl for and kept some money for themselves. So that was all a possibility. And yet, the gift giving is one where they, give, they get credit for the loss not only that they've taken in buying the gift, but credit for the loss that the entire system, the giver and the recipient, has undergone. And that would be the potlatch, would be the absolute version of this, that you get credit for destroying something so things are less valuable now, after the potlatch, the sum total of value in the community has gone down because of the potlatch rather than, sta- than being closed, than conserving value, which is what you would expect. So the sum total of value has gone down, and yet the person who's caused the sum total of value to go down is, gets credit for having done that. So that credit, which in the potlatch is hyperbolic, because the credit is for pure destruction, that credit is nevertheless credit that belongs to all gift-giving. And it's the kind of credit then that someone who takes the meanest portion in the dish also gets for taking the meanest portion in the dish. And we've you've all had that really horrible experience, right, where no one will take the last piece even though everyone wants it, and then the um, waiter comes and takes it away and it's like everyone is you know pretending to be talking and cheerful and it's all fine but damn that was terrible but everyone gets credit and so in a sense that's an everyday potlatch it's when everyone wants the last piece but no one takes it or even if anyone wants the last piece but no one takes it that's you've been there <laughs> now Jimmy you have the expression of someone who's been there mo- all too often just once just once and it's embittered your life since (laughs) what was it um it was pizza it was it's always pizza my friends and I will split pizza like one slice of pizza into like four everyone's like I don't want it but like I'll eat it if you're not going to eat it right yeah and then we end up like dividing it and it's just a mess and you pencil each other in yeah as to who's (laughs) going to get that last piece right Okay, but still, even saying I don't want it is risking it. In other words, you say I don't want it, and if someone says, oh, that's good because I do. Are you sure? <laughs> everyone knows that famous you're sure, where like your answer is just going to be a millisecond too late no matter how fast you answer. <laughs> and you can't answer too fast because then you look greedy. Um, so, all, So all of that are everyday versions of the potlatch. And again, the idea is for for Mandeville and then for Smith that those things are producing a value which is in the thought that someone else has about what you're doing. For Hobbes, that's the value of gratitude. We didn't talk about this in Hobbes, but Hobbes's definition of gratitude is a feeling of obligation that you owe to someone who's done something good for you, done something nice for you. So that sense of credit and of obligation, that is imaginary. Not that you don't have that credit or that obligation, but where it exists is in the imagination. And then Kant goes that further step to talk about things that only exist in the imagination and that are abstracted away from credit and obligation. So that is one way that we've looked at the relationship of money to aesthetic and artistic categories and the way aesthetics behaves like money but also the way money behaves like art, let's say. That is that, or the way, that, the way we value art for itself versus the way we value art for how much we can sell it for I was in the Academia in Venice once where there's um, an amazing painting, one of the great paintings of all time, which is Giorgione's La Tempesta. Does anyone know that painting? Um, so Gior- there are only two paintings that are clearly by Giorgione, and this is one of them. And um, it's really an astonishing painting. And the, there was a tour of people in front of us when we went in and the tour guide was um, talking about how amazing this painting was and um, there was a Texan among the Americans in the tour who um, said, well, how, how great is it actually? Um, and then he said, you know, they just sold Van Gogh for $70 million. What would this go for? And the tour guide said, it's a, that's an inconceivable question. It would never be sold under any circumstances, so it's inconceivable to talk about how much it would go for. And he said, yeah, but suppose something happened, and it was on the market, and it got sold. What would it, what would it go for? And um, the tour guide again uh, said, there, it's a meaningless question. It would never happen. But he really wanted to know, and it mattered to him a lot And he said, would it go for more than $70 And the tour guide said, it would go for 10 times more. And he said, that great, huh? And then he looked at it really closely. (laughs) So what he was seeing there was value. And once he saw value, then he was looking for the aesthetic part. That is, it wasn't like that great, why don't you put it in a vault? We don't have to see it at all. It was that convinced him that maybe it was worth looking at closely. So it wasn't an entirely um, um, materialistic attitude that he had towards it, but but the aesthetics came through a materialistic calculation. And um, again, that relationship of aesthetic value to monetary value, it's not completely clear-cut how those two things go together. But Kant, seeing that they go together, also wants to see how they are separate from each other by talking about what he calls purposiveness without purpose or utility, the look of utility without utility. That is something that should have exchange value based on its use value but has no use value only or only imaginary use value, Um, but you can't imagine the use you would put it to, that is the use value is abstracted from any use. And that is coming right out of Smith. It's an abstraction from Smith, but it's coming right out of Smith, but without any of the economic ideas that in Smith are still at the forefront. Here, the idea of a pure philosophy of aesthetics turns out to come out of um, philosophical considerations about value and about money. And that's another way to see how these things are connected. But now, and in figuring out the rest of the syllabus, where we are in this class is um, at the part where we talk about gambling. And as you will see from the gambler, so I don't want to give you too many spoilers, um, how many people are having trouble with it? How many people have started and are having trouble with it? Are feeling confused? Well, that's good. How many people have started it? You can cough if you haven't. (laughs) Okay. So everyone else has started it. Um, It kind of plunges right into the middle of things. That is, you don't know who anyone is, and you've got to you have to kind of figure it out as you're reading. Have, have you had that experience? Um, have you read enough, um, Joseph, to say who's who? Um, not every character, but like main characters. Okay, so who are some main characters? Just just uh, let's orient people for Wednesday. It's not all on you, but you're no, first. I just don't know like, how to pronounce names. That's okay, just describe. So you got the, well, the main character. He's a gambler, and he's in love with this uh, with this other woman who looks like she has like BP. E. Um, then there's the general <laughs> BP for borderline personality. Yes. Yeah. Um, the general, his mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who and uh, Ashley or something. Yeah, Mr. Ashley from Ashton. England. Yeah. All right, so basically, yeah. All right, so there's the narrator whose name we only find out halfway through. Um, Alexei Ivanovich, but that's his name. Um, he's taking notes. So one of the things about The Gambler is that it is a narrative where um, things are happening while the narrator is narrating. Um, so it begins at, begins as a journal, then it be- Then. Uh, the second part is, not the second chapter, but the second part is a write-up of what happened done about a month later after the first few days that are, that are simply like journal entries, although they're not dated. They're about what happened yesterday, and then there's a last part which is written up um, a year and a half later or a year and eight months later. So that part can be a little bit confusing, not that confusing, except you sometimes have to orient yourself in time. Um, And the narrator is a tutor in the house of the general. The word is uchitel, which is Russian for teacher or tutor. So when you see that word, that's what it means, uh, teacher or a tutor. And he is also really interested in everything that's going on and in love with the stepdaughter in the house in which he's a tutor, which is the general's house. So the general has brought his family to a place called, with I think maybe the, the name of the town is like indicative of what goes on there, Roulettenburg. So it's Rouletteville is where they are. The general's brought his family to Rouletteville, and um, among the people in the family is the tutor, or among the people in the household is the tutor. And the tutor is in love with the general's stepdaughter, Paulina, who is... Um, how that works can be a little bit confusing, but essentially... Um, the general is Paulina's dead mother's second husband, which is um, why she's the stepdaughter. And off in Russia, Roulettenberg, as the Berg part will tell you, is in Germany, off in Russia, the general's mother is... uh, I'm sorry, the general's mother-in-law, called Auntie, is um, apparently dying... And that's a good thing for the general because the general is completely broke. And he's gone to Roulettenberg and gotten broker because he's gambled. So he's in really bad trouble. He's completely broke. He's in love with a young French woman who will marry him for his money, as he well knows. So he needs money if he's going to marry her. Um, He really wants to marry her. He needs money in order to marry her and every and they're waiting for a telegram to announce that the um that the old lady has died, in which case he will make money and be able to marry the woman he wants, who he knows is a gold digger, but isn't he's not quite thinking of it that way he's thinking of it rather as she would like to marry me, but um she can't afford to marry me unless I have money so that's the that's the setup situation and th- as i say the narrator is in love with paulina who is scornful and uninterested in him and yet finds the fact that he can he seems to be able to tolerate her withering scorn and not to feel not to be driven away by it to be simultaneously Completely her slave, completely willing to do anything she wants him to do, including kill himself if she wants him to. All she has to do is say the word, humiliate himself, um, act like her lapdog, and because of that, is invulnerable to her scorn because her scorn doesn't make him take his self respect and go away. So basically, when you scorn people, what makes them vulnerable to your scorn is their own self respect. Because the narrator has no self-respect, he's not vulnerable to her scorn. So all of those things are going on. He has met a man, an Englishman, on his travels before um, reuniting with the family of Lettenberg, which is where it starts, and this Englishman is kind of hanging around the general's family. The Englishman has money. There's also a Frenchman who the general is deeply in hock to and the one of the things that the general wants to do is pay off the Frenchman so that he can then go off with the French mademoiselle, but the Frenchman himself is interested in both Paulina and the French mademoiselle. So lots of um, possible uh, connections, lots of possible erotic ways that things could work out, um, but... The blood of this community is money. It's like money being a, the blood of a commonwealth. The blood of this community is money. And it's a place where you can gamble. And gambling is um, always going to reshuffle the deck, um, both figuratively and literally. It will reshuffle the deck. And what they mostly play is roulette. Um, they also play, towards the end, a game called 30 and 40, 30 and 40, which is a version of Blackjack. And uh, so if you think of it as just being like Blackjack, it's fine. Uh, There's no, uh, you don't need to know any more about it. You do need to know a little bit about roulette, although it gets explained in the course of a novel, but do people know how roulette works? Jimmy? So there's a wheel, and you has like, numbers and colors on it, and you bet on the colors. Yeah, you can bet on, there are a ton of different things you can bet on. There's a reason there are numbers on it. Um, So a roulette wheel has 36 numbers. The way it works now is it has a total of 38 numbers. Back then it was 37. The numbers are 1 through 36 plus a 0. The numbers 1 through 36 are either black or red, and the 0 is green. At least in modern wheels it's green. But it's neither black nor red. It might be um, just just 0 a white zero on a black background, but it's not black or red the way everything else is in roulette. And then you have a layout where you where you place your bets. Um, you have chips or you have actual money and you place your bets on, you can place them on black or on red. You can bet on odd or on even, depending on whether the whether the number that comes out is odd or even. You can place your bet on the first half of the 36 numbers, that is 1 through 18, or the second half, 19 through 36. You can place your bet on 1 through 12, 13 through 24, or 25 through 36. You can place a bet on any number. You can place your bet on zero. And the payoff is essentially 35 to 1. But the house has a 36, the the house will win one time out of 36. In other words, the easiest way to think about it is if there are 37 different numbers you can bet on and 0 through 36, there are 37 different numbers you can bet on. But if you win by betting on a particular number, the payoff is only 35 to 1. So you put a dollar down and you win, you get $35. But you would expect to win only one time in 37. And therefore, over time, you lose money. And everything about roulette is about losing money. It gives a slight, like all um, casinos, there's a slight advantage to the house and the slight advantage is slight enough that if you're gambling casually, you won't notice it. Um, That is, you'll win roughly half the time, you'll lose roughly half the time if you're betting odd or even or black or red. Um, If you bet a number, you'll lose, you'll win roughly one time in 36, and you'll lose 35 times in 36, but the payoff will be Roughly 36 to 1. So it feels almost even, or it feels even to gamblers, but the house always has an advantage. And so over time, the money always goes to the house. There's another rule that gets explained, which is that there are limits to how much you can bet. That is that you can't bet as much as you want as um, various people will find out when they get sucked into the game, you can't bet as much as you want on any single bet there's a limit to how much you can bet to people this is true still today do people know why if you go to um, Somerville where the casino's about to open and you just want to bet on red when I was um I remember reading when I was in college about um Inflation, then, was really high. Do people know how high inflation was under um, Carter and at the beginning of Reagan? Inflation was something, was getting close to 15% a year. It was it was huge. Um, and uh, the, the real interest rates in the U.S. were something like 18% a year. Um, that's not credit card interest. That's what... Um, what the government was borrowing money at. So money, if you sat—if you had a sack full of money, every year it was losing an enormous amount of its value. So there was this guy who went to Las Vegas. I read about this in the newspaper. Um, he lived in the middle of nowhere in the desert in Nevada. He had $500,000 that he had... Um, uh, saved up over the course of his life And over the course of everything he did In a bag And he was losing money So he went to Nevada He took all $500,000 And he Said I want to place this all On red And the casino manager had to come out They had to decide whether they are going to allow him to make that big a bet But they did And um, he won And he took five, another $500,000 And left so he bet once, he doubled his money, and he left. And um, the reporter said, what were you doing? He said, it was going to be worthless anyhow. I figured either it will be worthless today or I'll get back what I lost and maybe a little bit more, and it was roughly 50-50. So I did it, and he won, and he left. And so that was cool. Um, but he had to get special permission to make that big a bet. So do you know why casinos limit how much you can bet? Yeah. Um, that's a that's an external reason, but there's an internal reason. So what's the ex- explain the money laundering? Well, I mean, you can launder money through gambling because you can, like <coughs> just report your winnings as like as like or you can report your ill-gotten gains as, as casino wins. Yeah. So you could what you can do is you go to a casino, you you make some betting, you, you do some betting, you actually lose money, but you treat it as though you've won that money and then you report it and you, no one gets you for not paying taxes on money you obviously had uh, the way they got Al Capone. Um, but there's a reason that casinos there's a purely selfish reason that casinos, yeah. What if you win? Like, they yeah. were down $500,000 because that guy won the bet. If someone came with a million and put it on and something with even better odds, they could be Shelling out thirty-five million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, um, they're not going to stop thirty-five people from betting on a three. In other words, if thirty-five people come in and bet um, ten thousand dollars on the three, and the three comes up, you know, we we see Mr. Lucky. We know he's Mr. Lucky because um, uh, we've seen him win three times before, and now Mr. Lucky puts puts. Um, $10,000 on the three, and the entire casino is chasing him, so they also do the same thing. Same deal. So it's uh, individuals are limited in what they can bet. I think it's true also that you can't actually, they won't let everyone bet on the same number, but they might. The question is why are individuals, why do they not? They may very well be perfectly happy with taking a very large bet as long as it's coming from many different people, but not from one person. Yeah. Does that have something to do with the fact that like forcing like so if you have five like half a million dollars and you force someone to break it up and like play multiple games, it gets more into like the psychology of gambling? That maybe so tr- <coughs> wanna like if you lose on the first one you're gonna wanna like play again. But if you have like five hundred thousand dollars and that's all you have, and then you lose it all in one, you're not gonna like You'll never come back. <laughs> That's okay though. They have your $500,000. Casinos don't care if people go broke as long as there are other people to come, which there always are. All right, so here's here's a question for you. Let's say that you have $950. That's what you have. And you really 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 want that $1,000 golden bowl that is for sale, buy it now, includes free shipping on eBay, $1,000. And for you, that would be totally great, but you only have $950. But you could go to Steve Wynn's casino. So what would you do to make sure, or as sure as you could, that you would get the Golden Bowl? Would you just watch other people gamble and steal their money as they left? That's obviously not the answer I'm looking for. Really, you have no idea if you really needed fifty dollars. You had nine hundred fifty, and you really needed fifty dollars, and there were a casino nearby. You have no idea how you would get that other fifty. You bet a really small amount. How much did you bet? I don't. I've never. How much do you need? Fifty. So what would you bet? It doesn't double? Is that it, yes, yeah, works? yeah. If you oh, put okay. it on red and it comes out red, it doubles. So the odds that it's going to come out red are 18 and 38 in roulette. You have an 18 out of 38 chance, not 18 out of 36, but 18 out of 38. So almost one half that it's going to come out red. So. Put down. Yeah, and if it comes out red, you're golden, and you leave, right? Is that what you were going to say? Let's say 25. But then you have to do it twice because you need 50. Then you put in 20. Oh. You have 950. You need 50 more. So if you take 25, you'll have 975 if you win, and you're closer but not there. And you just, all you want is to get to the 1,000. So if you bet 50 and you win, you're at 1,000. So that's good, 50-50 chance, roughly speaking. Let's, let's say a 50-50 chance that you get there. Um, it's not, which is how the casino is making money, but it's close, which is why it's okay to get a, a guesstimate by guessing a 50-50 chance that you'll win. Okay, so you put down 50. You win. What do you do? You go buy it now. You get the golden bowl. You lose. What do you do? you keep that. Idea. You bet 100. You win, you get the golden bowl. You lose, what do you do? 200 and then 400 and then 800. So, you would have to lose 50, 100, 200, 400 and 800 at a 50-50 chance. What are the odds that you're going to lose five times in a row? Aren't you, can't you not that, that much cuz you only have 950 by the time you get to 800. Yeah, okay, okay, yes, you're right. Um, but let's, okay, so so just fix it so it works, that it would be, um, let's say you have you have, uh, you have have to get to 1,500 and you have 1,450, something like that. So what are the odds that you're going to lose five times in a row? Low. Yeah, do so you know there? Um, if, if it's 50-50? If it's 50-50, then? Two to the fifth. Yeah, 32 yeah. Um, So the odds That you can't So you have a roughly 31 out of 32 chance Of winning $50 And if you do that If you can double If you have enough money If you just want a little bit, of, bit more money And there are no limits to the bet Then you can keep Doubling your bet until you win and when you win, you leave. So if you keep doubling your bet till you win and you have unlimited money to double your bet with, then you would eventually leave. Now, if you have unlimited money, there's no reason to gamble. So let's just say that you have a tremendous amount of money, a huge amount of money. Um, Jeff Bezos wants to buy Apple, and he puts the financing together and he's $50 short of the trillion dollars that he needs. He only needs $50 more, but he's got essentially a trillion dollars. Is he going to have any trouble getting that $50 by going to the nearest casino? No. So there's a tiny, tiny, tiny chance that he'll lose it all. That he will there's there's a one in two to the twentieth chance that he'll lose a million dollars, if he starts out betting a dollar, and that he'll lose a trillion is going to be um, even it's it's going to be tiny. So he could lose a trillion dollars if he has a string of fifty or sixty bad bets. Probably not that many, probably about 50. Um, bad bets. If, if the head comes up, have you guys read Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, or Dead?" Or have you seen the movie? Have you seen the play? Do you remember what happens with the coin there? Um, Rosencrantz keeps flipping a coin, and he keeps coming out heads, and Guildenstern keeps um, betting on tails. And he explains why each flip is random and is unconnected to the previous flip. And Rosencrantz keeps getting heads and says 103, 104. So the odds that a coin is going to come up heads 104 times in a row are something um, less than one over the number of atoms in the universe that you get 104 heads in a row. So it could happen. It's just not going to happen. It's like when you learned in basic chemistry that it's possible to put a pot of water on a burner and turn the heat on and the water will freeze. It could happen, but not in polynomial time. Actually, it could happen in polynomial time. Not, um, but it couldn't happen um, in any amount of time that any human being would care about. So casinos are vulnerable to... Um, that kind of manipulation. Someone can keep doubling their bets until they win. And most people won't do that because they won't have enough money to keep doubling their bets until they win. But if you allow unlimited, if there's no limit to how much you can bet, then they can keep doubling their bets until they win in theory. And so casinos, in theory, they may never win, but in practice they will, and so casinos won't do that. So that is one of the ways that um that um punters that is people who play in in casinos and the casinos interact, and that's a reason for um that the you're allowed to bet is limited. It comes up as you'll see not for that reason, but it does come up, but that is the reason that the rule is there in the gambler um so The thing, then, to notice is when you read The Gambler, to what extent imagining what's going to happen at the roulette table, imagining what's going to happen when you place a bet, imagining how things are going to work out is not only a really, really, really good subject for literature, but is, in fact a really, really, really good analogy for what happens in literature. So that's what to think about um, when you read The Gambler. Okay, so we'll do The Gambler. Then the question is, what should we do after that? So what we should certainly do, at the rate we're going, um, what we should do is go straight to uh, Dashiell Hammett's The Maltese Falcon. Um, Then we would do some stuff on modern monetary theory, um, uh, Zora Neale Hurston short story The Gilded Six Bits uh, short story by D.H. Lawrence uh, The Rocking Horse Winner and um, this great play by Wole Shoyinka the Nobel Prize winning playwright The Bacchae of Euripides um, that's the name of his play so there's a play by Euripides called The Bacchae and then Shoyinka's play is called The Bacchae of Euripides and the um, then an essay by Freud on um money called anal eroticism, obviously. And um then um we could do you guys know who Catherine M. Valente is? Any of you read her? My roommate did. Because I the book came in from Amazon and she's like, You're reading that? She has it because she wanted to read it. Does she like it? I don't know. Uh, I'm ask her. <laughs> um and then we can talk a little bit about um, blockchain and do some other poetry. Or we could do one more novel. So why don't you guys think about this for read The Gambler for Wednesday, um, look at the um, updated the syllabus as updated now, um, and think about do you want to read uh, one more novel? Do you want um, to read more, th- more um, short stories? Do you want to read more about money? Think about what you want to do. And we will decide on Wednesday. And but definitely, definitely, definitely finish the gambler for Wednesday. So, I have a question. What about the functions of money like, you know, like the list of three. like, when you refuse to take back the last piece of you're investing in trust? Which is like supposed to be something like uh, like, like money is supposed to be trust trust and maybe that's what we, we imagine. That. I don't think that's very well embodied in the three functions. Like where does the trust come? It's not the metric or the score of value. Well, it
1: might be a
0: book as a. You don't think it's there in the bookkeeping metric? Um, yeah, sure. Yes, I so mean, but I it's it's there. Oh, it's, there, uh, there, uh, it's it's so it's yeah uh, first yeah so that that's part of the thing that mouse is saying is that um, um, it's credit but it's um, it's credit with interest but it is um, what's keeping track of it is um, an emotional or conscientious sense of obligation rather than a conscious calculation. Um, But there is an anthropological structure that's keeping track of the credit and interest. Hi. Sorry, you're... Oh, right, yes, yeah. Yes, indeed. Um, Yeah, we should talk about it. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. And, and of course, by investing in trust, you are investing in the work. If you cannot trust people, then it, of course all the use values become completely uh, I- you know, irrelevant. And you know, so that, that is actually the most fundamental bedrock type of, you know, like just your whole work is correct, so Yeah. Then, uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. No, that's right. That's. Exactly-